listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, July 1st, 2019. Upcoming event, the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. Struggling to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life? The Strategic Life Alignment Seminar will equip you with tools for discerning your divinely ordained life purpose. For more information or to purchase a recording of this training, please visit strategieswork.com. The Strategic Life Alignment Alumni Event. The 2019 SLA Alumni Event will be held July 19th through 20th, 2019. The topic will be Blocks to Running Your Race. For more information or for recordings of all seven alumni events, please visit strategieswork.com. The Seminar Executional Excellence. This training was held last month. Recordings are available at strategieswork.com. These are challenging economic times. There is much fear in the world. Now more than ever, people need to understand the power of building their lives on Christ. Only faith in Christ can provide sustained victory over fear. If you need help learning how to walk with Christ, Strategies at Work has consultants in various parts of the world. Please see the website, strategieswork.com, for contact information. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, A Greater Hope. Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue talking out of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And my topic today, I've titled this, I Will Build My Ecclesia. According to the word ecclesia, it's translated in English church, even though the word in the original language does not really mean what the word English word church means. The English word for church is derived from an old English term that referred to a building. And that's how we many times use the word church. But the term ecclesia had no reference to a building. It had reference to a group of people who were assembled for the purpose of ruling and making some kind of ruling decision on behalf of the community. And that's the term that Jesus used when he talked about what his legacy would be after his death, burial, and resurrection, after his ascension. His legacy was to build his ecclesia. So that is our topic for today. So let's begin here with a little introductory comment. The gospel according to Luke recorded the words and works of Jesus during his first advent. His purpose was to complete the requisite work for the redemption of the ecclesia. The Old Testament revealed the total depravity of mankind and therefore the truth that mankind in and of himself was impotent to self-save from the penalty of sin. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul clearly taught that, the, that God promised a Savior for both Jews and Gentiles. This was the intent of God in the Abrahamic covenant that preceded the Mosaic law. Paul also explained that the purpose of the law was to reveal to mankind the depth of his depravity. This means that the law could never efficaciously facilitate mankind's effort to self-save. A consequence of mankind's depraved condition was that the creation mandate could not be fulfilled well. At creation, mankind was charged to be God's ruling agents on earth through both multiplication and numbers of people and mastery of God's universe. Clearly, this work assignment required people to align with their original design and live as image bearers of God. 
Sin impaired mankind's ability to so live because fallen mankind sought to compete with God as the sovereign over the universe. The meta-narrative is God's story of how he will restore his uncontested sovereign rule over his universe, redeem fallen humanity, and eradicate sin and death. The linchpin of the story is Jesus, and the seminal confirming event was the resurrection. The Gospel of Luke is a record of the incarnation of Jesus, his words and works, including his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts is a record of the work that Jesus carried on through his disciples, largely the apostles, after his ascension. This post-ascension work was the beginning of, of the legacy of Christ and how he intended to build and empower the ecclesia to enable mankind to fulfill the creation mandate. God's ultimate end is to restore his uncontested reign over his universe using human agents redeemed from all ethnicities. To be clear, this does not mean that every individual will be redeemed. See Romans 9. But God's blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 encompasses all ethnicities. The Old Testament ecclesia was the nation of Israel seeking to live under the Mosaic law in their own potency. They were to be God's people on earth, salt and light to all ethnic groups. They failed because they lacked the potency because of their fallen condition. The Old Testament predicted their failure to self-save and the advent of Jesus who would redeem mankind from this fallen state and empower a new ecclesia. A purpose of the book of Acts is to record the transition from the Old Testament ecclesia to the New Testament ecclesia. In this new paradigm, mankind's depraved state was remedied through the vicarious atoning work of Jesus. The basis for solving the problem of sin was established. Unredeemed mankind was redeemed. Impotent mankind was made potent. The ecclesia became efficacious. The creation mandate could be fulfilled. And all of this was part of the meta-narrative. The gospel accounts record Jesus' destiny in his incarnation that provided the basis for his legacy. His legacy was his work to build an efficacious ecclesia through his apostle and others after his ascension. The book of Acts reveals how Jesus fulfilled his legacy through a group of followers who, during the process, were confused and therefore needed much revelation and empowerment to fulfill their role in Christ's work of building his ecclesia. So let's take a look at the text. And I want to start by reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the reason for this is that there are some who, who view the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Acts, or excuse me, the Acts of the Apostles, as, as one and the same. Luke just continued his gospel message when he went it wrote the, uh, the book of Acts, even though there's a separate introduction to Acts. So if it's correct that they're to be coupled together, and some people have even said uh, we should look at this as Luke-Acts. So if you couple them together, then the introduction to Luke has meaning and application for the introduction to the book of Acts. And you can certainly see a clear connection between the two introductions. So in the Gospel of Luke, Paul, or excuse me, Luke wrote, uh, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. You see, Luke apparently was not an eyewitness to the events that he wrote about, but he heard about them from eyewitnesses. So he writes, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. Theophilus is a fictitious person. We don't know anything about him. His name means love of God. So that you may know the certainty of the things that have been in, you have been instructed. And that word instructed, um, we get the word catechize from. So uh, the whole idea of catechizing is instructing in the or in an orderly sequence about the facts about Jesus and the realities of life that the scripture then reveals to us. Now, Acts chapter one, verses one through three, you can see now is a very similar introduction. Uh, it's playing off of that and adding to it. So Luke writes, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, and he had also suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what I want to do in, in trying to uh, unpack this, this text is just point out to you some of the key things. You'll notice here that uh, Jesus began to do and teach, which means he hasn't finished. And the, the record of Acts is the continuation of Jesus doing and teaching things. And you'll notice that he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit, which that's very fascinating that Jesus would say it this way, what he's saying that he is very tightly coupled to the Holy Spirit. And we see if we look at John chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak anything that doesn't come from Christ. The Holy Spirit is coupled to Christ. As I mentioned in the um, introduction before we started the recording, um, there are some people today trying to separate Christ and the Holy Spirit and actually elevate the Holy Spirit and disconnect the Holy Spirit from Christ. I do not think that represents biblical thinking at all. Christ was the one who came. He was the incarnation of God. The Holy Spirit comes as then now the representative of God to continue to reinforce and illuminate the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit does not come with original ideas. He comes with what the Father and the Son impart to him to deliver. So there's a definite coupling there. Please notice also the idea of choosing. The apostles were chosen. They didn't choose Christ. In fact, even at his, his, uh, his trial and then his death, you know, they're nowhere to be found. They're gone. Nevertheless, he chose them, and he instructed them. He gave them specific instructions about what they were to do. They couldn't just go do whatever they want to do. They were guided and directed. They were commissioned to the work that they did. And you'll notice also he talks about the importance of the resurrection. You know, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. You have to recognize, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then there's no salvation. There is no, no life. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. 
the resurrection confirmed that the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross on our behalf was accepted by the Father. That's the confirming act. That's why the resurrection is so absolutely critical. If you want to discredit Christianity, all you have to do is discredit the resurrection. And this is why there's so much in the scripture, including this text here, about how God, uh, Christ appeared to so many people uh, and validated the reality that he was resurrected from the dead. And finally, the overarching concept, how all of these things that uh, we've just been talking about connect together and all of the things in scripture all connect together under the concept of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. God has sovereignly created the universe. He was the uncontested ruler initially. Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, and now the rule and reign of God became contested. The story of the meta narrative, the story of history, is the battle that's first mentioned in Genesis 3:15 in the Protevangelium. That battle is played out in history and will culminate with the second advent of Christ and the completion of the of the verdict of guilt on the Satan and his forces, sin and death and Satan and the, the kingdom of darkness will be eradicated and the uncontested rule of Jesus will be reestablished in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's, those are the overarching ideas that are contained here. So let me just give you some comments on this. In reading various commentators, it seems that most have a very limited view of the meta-narrative and the role of the ecclesia in the meta-narrative. Consequently, comments on these connections are weak and sometimes non-existent. As a result, Christians seem to be content seeing Jesus as Savior but not Lord. Viewing Christianity as significant only for personal, family, and maybe church life with the ultimate end of going to heaven. This perspective leads to immature Christians who are impotent to live under the Lordship of Christ and fail to see their role in fulfilling the creation mandate in the context of the meta narrative, which should be the driving objective of every believer. Those who truly know Christ are members of the ecclesia. It is not those who attend your local church necessarily. There may be in whatever local gathering you're part of some members of the ecclesia, but most likely, Everyone there is not a member of the Ecclesia because we don't vet our meetings to see who is there. We have open doors and anybody can walk in and many times they do. So when we have that going on, there is a confusion in the body of Christ about the Ecclesia. And there's a presumption many times, a generous assumption is made that if someone shows up at a meeting of what we call the local church, that they probably truly are members of the ecclesia, that is probably a very, very poor assumption. To properly understand the book of Acts requires a proper frame of reference. Christians are part of the ecclesia. The purpose of the ecclesia is to train and support God's people to find and fulfill their roles in the meta narrative. It seems rare to find Christians who understand this. Instead, most professing Christians are preoccupied with the world, world evangelism. If one views world evangelism as the highest calling in Christianity, one views discipleship as simply conversion. However, for a convert to become a disciple, he or she must mature. 
Jesus's real objective was not converts, but real disciples. By definition, the word ecclesia are those who are called out to rule under the lordship of Christ. Given that Luke wrote the, both the gospel of Luke and the acts of the apostles, it is presumed that they are intended to be connected narratives. The gospel of Luke focused on the destiny of Jesus in his incarnation, and the acts of the apostle focused on the legacy of Jesus through his followers, particularly the original apostles. These men carried on the word and works of Jesus after his ascension. After Jesus empirically validated his resurrection to his followers, he issued a command. This is out of Luke chapter 24 that reads, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to his, in his name to all ethnic groups. The word nations is what's used there, but it's ethnos, which means ethnic groups, beginning at Jerusalem. That is Luke 24, verse 47. To understand this correctly, one must understand it in the context of the kingdom of God. To, so how does repentance for forgiveness of sins, which is commonly called salvation, connect to the kingdom of God? The purpose of salvation is to empower people to be God's agents to facilitate his rule. To do that, to do what mankind was created to do. In other words, mankind in and of himself cannot rule God's world well because of sin, even though that's what we've been commanded to do in the creation mandate. What we need is to be empowered to overcome sin, not that we do it perfectly, but that we have the, the, the Holy Spirit in us to progressively empower us to more and more di die to sin and live for Christ. This means that salvation is not simply about living forever after one dies, Salvation includes a sanctification process and ultimately a glorification process. <clears throat> Disciples of Jesus were charged to be empowered agents of his words and works. That is his message and his mission. The message of salvation to empower mankind to fulfill his mission to serve as God's ruling agents. To his apostles, he said this, Luke 24, verses 48 through 49 you are witnesses of these things, referring to Christ, who he was, what he did, his word and his works. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. So the potency to be able to do what, what Christ is commissioning his followers to do has not yet been released. The founding leaders of the ecclesia were his original apostles. To these men, he laid a clear foundation by empirically establishing his resurrection that validated the acceptance of the atonement by the Father. Though some doubted, Jesus appeared to them many times. They touched him. He ate with them, even though he didn't need food. He opened their minds to understand scripture more profoundly. Paul recorded that Jesus appeared to the original apostles, his own brother James, over 500 people, and even to Paul himself. Christianity is based on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul stated that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no salvation from sins, which means there is no Christianity, no ecclesia, no creation mandate, no meta narrative, no hope. Our hope is only in the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us to be accepted with God. 
Given the factual reality of the resurrection of Christ, Luke in the book of Acts recorded the establishment and initial development of the ecclesia as part of God's meta narrative. In interpreting this book, one must recognize the transitional nature of the book. As with all transitions, one should expect some events to be singular and not necessarily normative. And we talked about this in the last lesson. It's important that you have a correct hermeneutic in interpreting a transitional book. And arguably, Acts is the only transitional book in all of Scripture. So there's a uniqueness about Acts and how you interpret it that doesn't carry over to other parts of Scripture. Particularly, we have to be very careful about what is normative here. And we do that through comparing Scripture with Scripture largely. The goal of this transition appears to be the formation of a new ecclesia encompassing all ethnicities and the empowerment by the Holy Spirit to be God's ruling agents thereby. This new ecclesia was divinely empowered to do what the Old Testament ecclesia could never do because it was predicated on human potency of depraved people, which can never be efficacious. The original apostles had a singular mission as God's agents in this transition from the Old Testament ecclesia based on human potency to the New Testament ecclesia based on divine potency. That is a unique one-time transition. That's what the book of Acts is largely about. All of this understanding falls under the overarching concept of the kingdom of God. The pedestrian understanding of the kingdom of God today seems to be limited to accepting Christ as savior. With little understanding of the lordship of Christ, and the holistic aspect of God's rule over everything. If indeed God's objective is to restore his uncontested rule over all creation, we must understand the kingdom of God holistically. We must view Jesus as Savior and Lord of all, every jurisdiction, every person, every context. He saves us from the penalty power and ultimately the presence of sin so that we can serve him as his ruling agents here on earth and into the next existence. The original apostles were chosen by Jesus for the mission of carrying out his multi-ethnic legacy of establishing and building the New Testament ecclesia. In today's popular paradigm of Christianity, the pedestrian assumption is that people choose to believe in Christ. This presumes that mankind has both the potency and the will to make the choice. The Apostle Paul disabused those who would think this way in Romans chapter 1 through 3. He stated that no one seeks God, see Romans 3.11, and all fall short of the glory of God. That's God's standard of righteousness, Romans 3.23. If all people fail to meet God's standards, and no one has the potency to seek God, then God must empower them. In other words, God chooses who to grant the gift of life to, and God chooses who would be used to propagate his message of life. This is the sovereign grace of God. This is not of man. Understanding the truth will facilitate humility and thankfulness in people. <clears throat> The human condition of total depravity means that mankind is biased to sin and is impotent to change this condition. Mankind cannot self-save. Mankind must have a savior. Just as Luke noted that the apostles were chosen, so also the Father chooses those who will comprise the ecclesia. This is offensive to most of us. We do not like this truth, but this is an undeniable truth of the word of God.
And it's very easy to see. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot choose life. We cannot choose Christ. He has to regenerate us. So regenerate, uh, regeneration must precede life. Notwithstanding the sovereign election of God, he chooses the means by which God, by which people are added to the ecclesia. His choice is to use the gospel message as propagated by his human agents. It is very tempting as you think about election to become a fatalist, but that would be very wrong. One uh, commentator I read said this, fatalism and Christianity, particularly the doctrine of election, dwell next to each other, but they are different. And one is right and the other was wrong. So we got to be clear, fatalism is not what scripture teaches. God does use human agents, but the work of regenerating people is a sovereign work of God. The work of sanctifying people now brings in human agents that God uses in the lives of people. God also uses the li uh, people to articulate the message of the gospel and to model for others things that would draw them to Christ, but he alone regenerates. In Acts 1, 4 through 8, the predicate for human agents to be used of God to facilitate building the ecclesia is the empowerment by the Holy Spirit through the work of regeneration and sanctification. Jesus stated that no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless that person is born again, that is regenerated, John 3, verses 3 and 5. This truth reinforces the reality that repentance for forgiveness of sins is a human manifestation based on a necessary predicate, spiritual regeneration based on the sovereign choice of God executed by the Holy Spirit through the use of human agents. This is what scripture teaches. Finally, in verse three, Luke clearly confirmed that the centering point of Jesus's teaching between his resurrection and ascension was the idea of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God over his universe, which was the beginning purpose of mankind, which will be the culminating agenda of God and the new creation will be his uncontested rule and reign. In this time period between the fall of man and the final eradication of sin at the second coming of Christ, there is a battle. There's a contest as to who will be the sovereign over the universe, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. Ultimately, God's rule and reign will be uncontested. However, during this time between the two advents, there is a battle going on. The New Testament Ecclesia comprise, comprises the agents who are to fulfill the creation mandate in the context of the meta-narrative during this intervening time between the advents of Christ. So God never loses sovereign control, but there is rebellion. And the book of Acts reveals more of the unfolding meta-narrative and displays his continuing grace until God's uncontested rule and reign of the universe are restored at the second advent. Now, a couple of theological points before I make an application. First, <clears throat> instructions of Jesus to his apostles. This common assumption today is that the Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which is commonly called the Great Commission, but which I'm going to call in my comments the discipleship mandate, <clears throat> this is commonly greatly misunderstood. Uh, most interpret this text to be a mandate for world evangelism. 
Furthermore, most today seem to believe that the highest and greatest objective of Christianity is simply getting people to make a profession of faith in Christ. This position presumes that the kingdom of God has little relevance beyond personal salvation and that discipleship is little more than evangelism. It also presumes that the mandate is still a governing instruction to the ecclesia. Now, as noted in the first lesson, the early members of the ecclesia, that is the first 300 years of Christianity, these early believers regarded the discipleship mandate as a command to the original apostles, who presumably fulfilled it. That is, they made disciples in all ethnic groups. That was what they were charged to do. The book of Acts records how the ecclesia was established in Jerusalem, then spread to Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. The process was progressively progressive both in revelation and in reality. The apostles were driven and guided by the Holy Spirit, though they were sometimes, I want to say many times, perplexed at what was going on. You know, particularly you look at Acts 10 when Peter is taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He's very confused about what's going on. But in the end, he sees it. He understands it. He connects the dots. The disciples of the first three centuries did not view the discipleship mandate as prescriptive to the ecclesia. However, they saw application of aspects of the mandate. For example, they sought to baptize the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is part of the discipleship mandate. They also sought to train people to obey the commands of Christ. They viewed that very, very importantly. In fact, they viewed catechism as an extremely important part of Christianity. And they sought to make disciples, you know, that was their main focus. But the mandate to go and make disciples of all ethnic groups was presumed to be prescriptive to the apostles and not to the ecclesia at large, which is why the, the early church did not have an organized missions program. Their missions initiative was simply live it and God will bring to you the people you're assigned to disciple. Now, we don't do that today because we put almost no emphasis on learning to live it. We put all the emphasis on getting people to come to a meeting where they can hear a message and where someone we call a, a pastor can, can talk to them and hopefully lead them to Christ. That is a very different model today from the model of the early church, which was all based on modeling the reality of what it meant to be a Christian. Given Luke's account in Acts, it appears that carrying the message of Christ to all ethnic groups was largely led by the original apostles, though they had help from others. Whether or not the early ecclesia understood the go portion of the discipleship mandate correctly is debatable, but it is clear that the mandate is not about evangelism, but about discipleship, profound discipleship. Evangelism focuses on people making professions of faith Discipleship focuses on people becoming followers of Christ. Evangelism is event-oriented. Discipleship is process-oriented. Evangelism is impersonal. Discipleship is personal. Evangelism is non-relational. Discipleship is relational. Evangelism, properly understood, is not the end, but a step in the discipleship process. The early ecclesia seemed to be clearer on these points than we are today. Now, let me comment about the kingdom of God. The overarching theme 
of Christ during the 40 years between his resurrection and ascension was not the popular themes of today, such as salvation, world evangelism, missions, church growth, giving, going to heaven, etc. Instead, Christ focused on the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, his will done his ways. Since the fall of man, a state of rebellion against God has existed and continues to exist. The protevangelum of Genesis 3.15 expressed in synopsis form the big picture of the meta-narrative, God's response to this rebellion, judgment and redemption. The kingdom of darkness opposes the kingdom of light. That is the kingdom of God. Satan resists the sovereign rule of the triune God of the Bible. The kingdom of darkness will have some success. That is, the heel of the seed of the woman will be bruised. But in the end, the kingdom of darkness will be judged and the kingdom of light will prevail. That is, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. God's uncontested rule over his creation will be restored. The meta narrative of history can be reduced into this singular theme, and everything connects to the meta narrative. To understand the meta narrative, one must understand the various elements of the story, beginning with creation, the fall, redemption, restoration, and recreation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they did not understand the depth of their fall. One of the major lessons of the Old Testament was to reveal to mankind his state of total depravity, total impotency to self save. To do this, there were various experiments to reveal to mankind that no matter what mankind could not self-remedy his fallen state. That is, mankind cannot self-save. Immediately after the fall, mankind was left to himself with only general revelation and oral tradition. Then mankind was given a promise, the Abrahamic promise. And then a legal system was given to a select group of people through special revelation. And all they had to do was obey. And they fell. In every scenario, mankind failed Mankind could not gain right standing with God no matter what. The kingdom of darkness always wins when mankind depends on his own strength, his own potency. Without divine potency, there will be and can be no redemption. Part of the Old Testament story was the period in the Mosaic Law. God chose one ethnic group, Israel, to be his ecclesia, that is to be his salt and light, to be his called out people, to model for the world what it was to be a people of God. In Exodus 19, God offered the covenant of the law to Israel. It was a conditional covenant. If they would obey him, they would be his people, and they would be his ecclesia, and he would be their God. They would be a physical manifestation of the kingdom of light if they obeyed him. Notwithstanding all that God did to redeem them, preserve them, prosper them, protect them, the Old Testament ecclesia failed to obey. This was intended by God to reveal to mankind that human potency alone was not adequate to be righteous before God. Humans could not live as God's ecclesia without divine empowerment. This was the context for the first advent of Jesus, who would be the savior and king of all mankind. God's meta-narrative involved two advents. First, spiritual transformation, what that and then ultimately complete physical transformation. Christ's first advent laid the spiritual foundation for the physical transformation to be completed at his second advent. 
His first advent was his work of spiritual redemption that would be worked out in the divinely empowered New Testament ecclesia between his two advents. And his second advent would be the full physical manifestation of the restoration of the uncontest, uncontested rule and reign of God over his creation, the fulfillment of the Prodivangelum. To see this requires metaphysical awareness, the ability to see reality from God's perspective. The kingdom of God is therefore the unfolding reality of the victory of the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness. God's uncontested reign over his creation will be restored. This is the story of the meta-narrative. This is our story. This is why we're here, to play a role in God's meta-narrative. Everything must be viewed in this context. The book of Acts reveals events that are part of establishing God's divinely empowered ecclesia that will facilitate his purpose in the meta-narrative between the two advents of Jesus. The Old Testament ecclesia was impotent and therefore not efficacious. The New Testament ecclesia is divinely empowered and will be efficacious. Now, a word of application, and I've titled this A Greater Hope. The 2015 movie, The Martian, is a fictitious story about an astronaut, Mark Watney, accidentally left behind on Mars when a storm threatened the safety of his NASA exploration crew. The raging storm necessitated an emergency launch from Mars. During preparation for launch, Watney was struck by flying debris. The dust storm was optically thick, visual visibility was impaired, consequently no one could see the injured Watney, and even after a hasty search, they were not able to find him. Multiple attempts to communicate with him failed. So presumably, presuming that he was dead, the expedition commander ordered the crew to depart on the launch ascent vehicle from Mars. However, surprisingly, the injured Watney survived. Eventually, NASA became aware that he was alive and established contact with him. The rest of the movie chronicles the risky one-and-a-half-year odyssey to rescue him before he exhausts his food supply. The cost, both in terms of manpower and resources, was staggering. Plus, the rescue crew put their own lives at risk with no guarantee that their effort would be efficacious. The commitment to rescue Watney was a great relief to all, particularly to Watney. Initially, he was uh, alone with few life support resources and no ability to communicate with NASA. His situation appeared hopeless. However, when he was finally able to establish communication with NASA, he was greatly relieved to learn that they would attempt to rescue him. He had hoped that he would not die on Mars. But why would NASA and the world, and this became a global effort in the movie, why would they invest so much and risk additional lives to rescue one person. An atheist worldview asserts that human life has, is without purpose. The only value is the modest worth, uh, worth of the chemicals that comprise the human body. Surprisingly, in this movie, individual human life was highly valued, which means that the Hollywood movie was not projecting atheism, but Christianity. Only Christianity places a high view on human life. Christian thinking singularly asserts that God is sovereign, intentional, and strategic. Therefore, God creates each person for his purpose. Each human has value in their respective callings to serve the will of the creator. Humans that value God value this purpose. You value, they value the purpose of God in people and seek to help others as well as themselves fulfill 
that purpose. Behind the commitment to NASA to rescue Watney was the presumption of human value, a Christian human value that comes from being created by a sovereign, intentional, strategic creator. Now, I know that's probably very unwitting on their part, and if you were to approach them with this, they would probably try to deny it, but the reality is they cannot explain why they did what they did based on atheism. Furthermore, given the value that God places on people, there is also within each person the ability to realize their potential. The impediment to releasing human potential is sin. The Old Testament account of the failure of Israel to obey the Mosaic law illustrated that mankind lacks the potency to release his own potential because of sin. Jesus came to provide the basis for forgiveness of sin and therefore acceptance with God. Consequently, through regeneration, based on the redemptive work of Christ, people can enjoy not only forgiveness of sin, but deliverance from the power of sin, not completely and not perfectly, but progressively. This freedom then empowers people to progressively realize their divinely ordained potential. Since the advent of Jesus and the establishment of the New Testament Ecclesia, the reality of this salvation has been most clearly seen. Prior to the first advent of Jesus, the Old Testament Ecclesia, that is Israel, was impotent because of sin, and few really understood or experienced the real solution to sin, and that is understanding faith in Christ and faith in God, and the just will live by faith. That was not well understood in the Old Testament, but now after Christ, it's, it's much clearer. So the power of the saving grace of God is evident through the New Testament Ecclesia as never before, and it's available to all that God chooses. In other words, the members of the New Testament Ecclesia can efficaciously be delivered from sin that will empower human potential as never before. This is the reason for hope. Not only hope for this life, but for eternal life. Watney's hope was to be rescued from Mars to continue his life on Earth. The hope of Christ, however, is not only a physical life well-lived, but eternal spiritual life. Real hope transcends physical life. Real hope comes from knowing Christ. The role of the New Testament Ecclesia is to be the incubator and sustainer of the people of God so they can enjoy real hope and fulfill the purpose of God in their existence and beyond in the new creation to come. The book of Acts is the biblical record of the transition from the Old Testament Ecclesia that was based on human potency to the New Testament Ecclesia that is based on divine potency. This transition highlighted the difference between law and grace works and faith as the basis of redeeming mankind from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. The original apostles were the founding human fathers of the New Testament Ecclesia. The first local expression of the New Testament Ecclesia was in Jerusalem. From there, the New Testament Ecclesia grew and spread to all ethnic groups and will continue until the second advent of Christ that will culminate the meta-narrative and initiate the new creation. A greater hope is, therefore, an eternal hope. A hope beyond just physical survival and a life well lived. A greater hope encompasses eternal life singularly coming through the good news about the grace of Jesus Christ.